And I think if it is lost, of course, that'll be at the end of the postal survey in all likelihood. And all the campaigning and other things will come to a halt and we'll be back to where we started. That is, will Parliament make a decision? Is it on? Look, I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it, it is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast, Is It On? My name is Alice Workman and this week I'm in Sydney with my brand new co-host. Drum roll please. It's Lane Sainty! Lane, welcome to the podcast. Alice, hello. I am so excited to join the Is It On podcast, uh, which I now hear has officially been made a finalist in the Publish Awards. That is right, Lane. We have been nominated for a Publish Award for Best Podcast. And uh, have you seen the list? Do you know who we're up against? I do know who we're up against. The Decoding Genius Podcast by Fairfax Media. Never heard of him. We're up against Modern Babies by Nova. Come on, babies with smartwatches. I don't need any of that shit. What about, what about Six Tackles with Gus by the wild, wide world of sports on Channel 9? Sport is boring! And the Smart Property Investment Show. We can't afford to buy houses, so who cares? They can rack off! No, I'm just joking. Uh, they're all very, very strong contenders. Indeed. It's an, it's a, as every loser preem- preeminently says, it's just an honour to be nominated, Lane. Absolutely. <laughs> it is um, an honour. If, you, if you're listening to this and you want to get behind the little podcast that could with Lane and Alice, you can chuck us a review on iTunes. You can chuck out a tweet. Uh, you could uh, tell your friends to subscribe on any podcasting platform. I mean, Lane, hit me with the great news. What do, If we win, what do we get? Look, Alice, I have no idea what happens if we win. A trophy? A million bucks? Glory? Who oh, can say? Glory. No. But I, I do want to note that Mark Stefano <laughs> left the country on Sunday. Yes. It's did. now Thursday. Yes. He leaves the country yes. and the podcast gets nominated for an award. <laughs> Woof! Correlation does not always equal causation, but... <laughs> Sorry to stiff. I uh, hope you're doing well we miss in you. London town. Now, uh, we've got a huge episode this week. Lane, what is happening? Well, as we all know, there's never been a more exciting time to be a constitutional law expert in Australia. You said we... that with a straight face, but... <laughs> I, I mean, I mean it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> With all this drama over dual citizens and the postal survey, I don't think we've, or at least not in my lifetime, have we seen constitutional law experts rolled out so frequently to comment on politics. Mm. So I sat down with Australia's foremost expert in constitutional law, George Williams. Anyway, we've got a lot to crack through, so let's get into this week's Fast Five. Number one, sound the citizenship klaxon. We've got another one. That's right, Darren Hinch is the latest Australian politician to come under a citizenship cloud, but his story is a little bit different to all the other seven pollies that have been scandalised so far. So to give it a bit of background, he was born in New Zealand, so he did renounce his New Zealand citizenship before he ran for the the Victorian Senate seat, Um, but he's also been in jail. He likes to say that he studied Section 44 closer than any other politician, but Lane... Maybe not close enough. So it turns out in the 60s and 70s, when he was working as a journo in New York, he got a social security number, which meant he paid 10 years worth of US income tax, which makes him technically eligible for a pension and could put him on the wrong side of the constitution, which by now we all know by heart says, you can't be entitled to the rights or privileges of a foreign power. We all know it off by heart. Don't we? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Everyone. Now, Hinch says that he doesn't think a pension is a privilege and he's written to the Americans to tell him to freeze the pension and he's referred himself to Australia's Solicitor General anyway. Um, and he said, oh, yeah, I'm just really happy for the Senate to refer me to the High Court because he can't refer himself. But the government have come out and said, this is all a publicity stunt. There's nothing wrong with you, mate. We don't want to refer you. So, so the government is saying that Hinch suggesting that he is ineligible for his own job Mm. is a publicity stunt. Yes. Okay. Yes, him suggesting he may not be allowed to do the job, which he gets very paid very well to do, Mm -hmm. is a publicity stunt to make him do the job that he gets paid very well to do better. Yeah, I suppose weirder publicity stunts have have occurred. Maybe he just wants a free trip to the US. I don't know. But anyway, just to summarise, so the other pollies that we've had, Deputy PM Barnaby Joyce, Kiwi, Deputy Nationals Leader Fiona Nash, Brit, Dabbers one in Scotland. 
National Senator Matt Canavan, Italian. Crossbench Senator Nick Xenophon, Brit via Cyprus. One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts, uh, Brit via India. Green Senator Larissa Waters, Canada. Scott Ludlam, New Zealand. Now, Nash, Xenophon and Hinch haven't been referred yet to the High Court, but the High Court is slated to hear all the other citizenship arguments on the 9th and 10th of October, but they may take some time to del- deliberate, so we don't know when the results will come in. But the Prime Minister... Malcolm Turnbull came out this week and again reiterated that he is really confident that all the coalition politicians, so that's Barnaby Joyce, Fiona Nash, Matt Canavan, will all be upheld as eligible. He's What's very he? confident. Yeah, he's, he's a very agile, confident man. What is number two? Well, number two, Alice, is um, in reference to a phrase that I think describes most of our conversations, <laughs> respectful debate. <laughs> So the first ads from the No and Yes campaign in the upcoming postal survey on same-sex marriage debuted this week. Let's just take a quick listen. Here's the No ad. School told my son he could wear a dress next year if he felt like it. When same-sex marriage passes as law overseas, this type of program become widespread and compulsory. Kids in Year 7 are being asked to role-play being a same-sex relationship. You can say no. And here is the yes ad which was made in reply to the no ad the next day. School told my son he could wear a dress next year if he felt like it. Over the coming weeks, we'll be hearing a lot about whether our family and friends who are gay and lesbian can get married. Sadly, some are trying to mislead us, like this ad does, by saying there'll be a negative impact, including on young people. The only young people affected by marriage equality are young gay people, who for the first time will have the same dignity as everyone else in our country. And they deserve that. So this debate, as we all know, has been going for a really long time. But the back and forth with these ads is kind of our first glimpse at what the the throes of the postal survey might look like. Mm. The really quick response from the yes campaign in response to the no ad is, I think, a really interesting aspect of this. In the past, the strategy of this group, Australian Marriage Quality, has often been to, I suppose, kind of ignore the negativity of the no campaign, press on ahead with their narrative, which is all about loving gay relationships and having conversations with your family and friends. But a senior yes campaigner said to me the other day, you know, we're in the thick of the campaign now. We have to respond when this stuff happens. That's really interesting because in Ireland, didn't they say their most successful ad was the ad that got the grandparents and the parents to say, we're voting yes because of our kids? Which yes. kind of didn't really talk about the no campaign at all. Yeah, I, I think it's um, less that their strategy now is going to be, you know, always responding to the no campaign, but just that they, have to do the, it just that they decided to do yeah. it. Yeah, but yeah, you're completely right in that the Irish campaign featured parents, grandparents, relatives really, really heavily. And I think that is definitely going to be something that the Yes campaign are doing here. The other thing to note in response to the TV ads is the huge response to the no ad. The Mm. first woman who features in it claims her son was told he could wear a dress at school. The principal of that school has said that the incident never happened. Who's telling the truth? As I like to say, Alice, who can say? Ooh, so one could say it was like they were merely actors reading a script. Well, they're they're not actors. Were they fake tradies, Lane? No. (laughs) (laughs) They're... They're not fake tradies. The three, the three women in the video. Well, the fake tradie wasn't a fake tradie either. Yeah, anyway, yeah, that's true. Going. The fake tradie was a real tradie posing as a fake tradie. The point is, everyone is talking about whether or not this kid was told he could wear a dress, and it's shifting the narrative away from marriage itself, which is mm. obviously a big tactic of the No campaign. The other big thing to talk about in terms of the actual campaign that, that's kicking off is the posters that have been seen in Melbourne. There does appear to be a few different neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups who have entered this respectful debate and have been putting up posters accusing gay people of all sorts of terrible things in Melbourne and in Brisbane. There is one poster that's veracity has been questioned, particularly after Channel 10 did a Photoshop to suggest it had been up on a bus shelter. So there was a a poster that no one really knew where it came from, that maybe maybe was real, maybe wasn't. Mm -hmm. And Channel 10 decided, I know what we'll do. We'll blow up that poster and we'll stick it on this and we'll, we'll put it on this bus shelter and pretend that like it was like a bus shelter ad. Yeah, that, that is precisely what happened. Oh, um, man. So it not was the, not the best move. No, not 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 great. So d- to clarify, it was not on the bus shelter. That Channel 10 photo that you might have seen was fake. 
Um, But our colleague Josh Taylor has done a lot of work to try and verify the original picture of the poster, and it does appear that at least one paper version of the poster was up in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. Meanwhile, we have confirmed other posters from neo-Nazi groups up in Melbourne and in Brisbane. Mm. So, Alice, I regret to inform you that while this whole thing would be a myth would probably be quite nice, it is actually not a myth, and it is very much real that Nazis putting up anti-gay posters is now part of the discourse. Wow. Yeah. So other things to do with the postal survey, mm. um, we discovered... Oh, we got the enrolment numbers. We got the enrolment numbers. So there's more than 16 million people now on the electoral roll. That's the biggest number since Federation. 98,000 new voters signed up in the postal survey enrolment drive, 65,000 of which are under 25. But it is still less than the number of new voters that enrolled when the last election was called. So some people mm. have warned not to make too much of the figures. Um, yeah. We'll see how that pans out. But that's also because... It happened really quickly. Like, the deadline to update was really quick. It came out of nowhere. So I'm sure there'd be, you know, when you turn 18, the AEC do go around to schools and get people to enrol in the, like, lead-up to elections. Right. And it's also there's also data matching now, so certain parts of it are automatic. So if you go get a driver's licence for the first time, you'll get on the roll straight away. Or if you move out, you've, you tell the RTA you've moved or whatever, it'll, you'll get data matched in. So that, that, I think, yeah. But it is the biggest enrol since Federation, and I think that's important. Indeed. And the final thing to say about the postal survey. Well, is this the final thing you're ever going to say? The final thing to say about the postal survey in this fast five is that we'll find out next week whether it's actually happening or not. So the the High Court challenge will be on Tuesday and Wednesday in Mm -hmm. Melbourne. I'll be down there covering it. Mm. If the government wins, full steam ahead. If it loses, this whole postal survey is stopped in its tracks. Either way, we will know next week. All right, I'm so done talking about the postal survey. Alice, number three. Number three is, now Lane, since the coalition government came to power in 2013, they've been notoriously cagey about what happens in the oceans that are surrounded by Australia, as Johnny Depp says, the beautiful island. Uh, You might know that they went uh, as far as to create the term on water matters, which is whenever they got asked a question about what was happening in the water and they didn't want to answer it, they just said, oh, we can't answer it, it's on water matters. Um, Now, the government's uh, uh, program is called Operation Sovereign Borders and that's the program that that sends people back and and they like to boast that it's resulted in no boat arrivals for several years. And even a couple of weeks ago, Peter Dutton said that there have been no successful boats arriving in Australia in well over 1,000 days. But there have been 31 boat turnbacks in the last three years. But yes, no boats have made it to Australia. But Lane, mm-hmm. that might not be exactly true. No. Because eight days before Peter <gasps> Dutton made this claim, a boat with six Chinese men and one Papua New Guinean man made it into Australian territory on August 20th. Immigration have confirmed they didn't turn the boat back and it was in Australian waters, but they did detain the men. Five were returned to China. Two, one of the Chinese men, one of the Papua New Guinean men, were arrested and charged with people smuggling and they've been remanded and they're in custody and they're pending a court appearance. So a boat has arrived. And if that one has arrived, maybe others have arrived and we haven't heard the details of them. You've done very easily said... No boats have arrived. Yeah, with complete Eight confidence. Eight days after that boat arrived. Exactly. Well, yeah. Yeah. you can't say you didn't know. At mm-hmm. the same time, the government have also decided they're going to cancel the welfare payments and housing arrangements for 70 asylum seekers who were transferred from the detention camps on Manus Island and Nauru to Australia for medical treatment. Now, those 70 people will be put on bridging visas where they'll be allowed to work and pay for their own accommodation. And this is all going to happen while the government waits for a court decision about whether or not they're allowed to force these 70 people to go back to offshore detention. So whether they can kick them out of the country. Okay. Also this week, mm-hmm. it's been a killer week, Peter Dutton said that any lawyers that help asylum seekers are un-Australian. And he also said, Lane, that uh, Labor frontbencher Andrew Lee was a weird cat. A weird cat. Let's roll the tape. We have an absolutely transparent process and this, this call for the production of certificates is frankly uh, the analogy of the US birther movement. What sort of fellow is this fellow? I, I, I watch him with a puzzled look on my face on Sky News. Is he as strange as he sounds? He's a weird cat, Ray. A weird dude. He is a weird dude. A weird dude. Okay. Well, <laughs> at the there's not much you can say about that. No. What's I, number four? I suggest we move right on <laughs> to number four, which is electricity. So this week, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull had a powwow with the energy bosses where everyone agreed that electricity bills, too expensive. Alice, mm. they're too expensive. Mm. Mm. But the snowy hydro... Sorry, I was swallowing water. 
They are too expensive. I think we can all agree. Great to have you with me. Well, so <laughs> I was going to say, Malcolm Turnbull always says, you know, people never come up to me on the street and talk to me about same-sex marriage. All they want to know is why their electricity bills are so high. Okay, Malcolm, what have you done about it? Okay, so the Snowy Hydro 2.0 plan is years away from offering any relief to all of these people who approach Turnbull on the street and tell him that their electricity bills are too high. So what will retailers do in the meantime? Well, they've agreed to write to more of their customers to inform them that a better deal is available, either with them or with someone else. So according to the PM, 2 million Aussies could be saving hundreds of dollars on their electricity bills every year. But it's this opt-in system where people actually need to go to their electricity provider and basically say, hey... Are you charging me too much? Is there a better deal? And then the provider will be like, ah, you got me. Ah, you got me. (laughs) Sneaky. We'll give you a cheaper deal. (laughs) And so what's going to happen is that the the electricity companies are going to send out these letters to people and they'll be advised to go to the Energy Made Easy website. And that website is like a kind of comparison website where they can put in the details about their energy needs. And then they'll be told if there is a better deal that will make their bills cheaper. So the energy companies also use the meeting to ask Turnbull to introduce the clean energy target, but there is still no word on when that particular debate might be resolved. Okay, Alice, what's number five? Number five, did you know that you can legally now call Tony Abbott the C-word? Legally? Legally. Let me explain. In August 2015, uh, Danny Lim, who's a 75-year-old man who's a well-known Sydney character, he was photographed by the Daily Telegraph with a sign that said... Peace, smile, people can change, Tony, you, C, upside down, A, N, T, liar, heartless, cruel, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace <laughs> be with you. all that. Yes. <laughs> okay. Now, at the time, Tony Abbott was Prime Minister and Danny was given a $500 fine for offensive manner in a public place. Now, he refused to pay the fine and took it to court. And this week, he won his appeal and the penalties were set aside. The judge found that the C word was not necessarily offensive because Australians use it more than people in other speaking countries, especially America. (laughs) So the Prime Minister should not be immune from being called the C word merely because of his job. He also pointed out that uh, Danny had spelt the word C uh, upside down A-N-T. So, I mean, what does that even mean, Lane? (laughs) We, we can't interpret what that means. Could mean anything. Um, at best, it is marginally offensive. So it is now legal. If you want to do some political commentary, you can call the PM the C word. Um, and I'm not sure if you remember, Lane, but last year uh, some protesters were also charged with offensive language after they were filmed chanting, fuck Fred Nile, uh, who's a well-known anti-gay Christian state politician in New South Wales, uh, and they had their charges dropped on appeal as well. So the most Australian thing you can do is drop an F-bomb or a C-bomb at a politician. But speaking of Australian things, we thought this week that we'd speak to a constitutional lawyer to clear up some of this whole citizenship drool kiwi drama. Yeah, there's there's a lot of chat at the moment about what the constitution means. Great chat. Who should interpret the constitution? Who should have read the constitution? Who has read it? So, you know, I thought it was time to ask an expert. So Lane sat down with the number one constitutional law expert. I wonder if uh, he drops any, any C-bombs, F-bombs here, Lane? Any C-bombs? He doesn't. No. Okay. All right. Well, he is George Williams. George Williams, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. So has there ever been a more exciting time to be a constitutional expert in Australia? <laughs> well, it's certainly a very unusual time to have such attention on this very old document. But I think there has been another time that's a bit like this. It was actually during the Whitlam government when we had that government lurching from crisis to crisis. We had uh, multiple challenges in the High Court that threatened its own legitimacy, its numbers also in the Senate. And, of course, under the Constitution, Sir John Kerr ultimately dismissed the Whitlam government. So, I mean, that was a full-blown crisis as opposed to, uh, you know, what is quite a ridiculous one we have at the moment. Uh, But that was a time when equally we had people scurrying to check the Constitution and find out what the rules are. Right. And on the Section 44 debacle currently facing the government, I kind of want to go back on this. So can you talk me through the origins of the dual citizenship ban? Does it originate from, I suppose, xenophobic um, beliefs or was it more of a practical thing at the time of writing? Well, if you go back to the convention debates, there's a strong sense that uh, foreigners weren't to be trusted. 
um, that they shouldn't be allowed into our parliament. Of course, this was a different world. We're talking about the 1890s, and at that point, people didn't travel very much between countries. Communication was poor. Um, we soon afterwards introduced the White Australia policy, designed to keep people out uh, unless they fit the British heritage that we were looking for. But when we're talking about foreigners, we're talking about particular groups, uh, particularly people from Asia and elsewhere. We weren't talking about Britain. Uh, we weren't talking about New Zealand or Canada, because at that point we all had a common citizenship. We were all called British subjects. So this clause actually said that if you're from those countries, you're okay, because it was all a common citizenship. It was when you were outside of that commonwealth that you were knocked out. What changed was we lost our common citizenship and uh, today we've just got Australian citizenship. So in fact, you can be knocked out if you're from the, from the United Kingdom, New Zealand or Canada. And that's where the section has come to do something quite different to what the framers expected. Right. And so the that's very interesting because the majority of people in the parliament who are currently you know under question do actually come from you know we're talking about dual citizenship with with britain with canada um with new zealand and, and those sorts of things um so of the people who you know are currently under question who do you think is gonna and who do you think has a chance of being vindicated <laughs> Well, and, and of course, as a lawyer, you've got to preface these things by saying that, look, I don't know the answer, but I'm happy to say... You Unlike know, Malcolm Turnbull. Well, that's right. I, I think at your peril, you say what the answer is going to be, mm. because these are seven independent judges of the High Court. They haven't decided a case like this for 25 years. So Sykes and Cleary was the last case in 1992. So we're making predictions about what a court will do when none of the judges uh, were there in 92. It's an entirely new court since then. But what we can say is that the approach of the High Court is it tends to follow its earlier decisions. Um, it follows precedent. Uh, it, it develops it, but that gives it, if you like, the tram lines of direction that we're heading in. And what the court did decide a quarter of a century ago was a pretty strict reading of this provision. They said that if you're a dual citizen, uh, you must renounce that other citizenship according to the laws of the other country. You've got to take all reasonable steps to do so, and if you don't, then you're disqualified. And uh, the difficulty for the many politicians here, all seven of them, is that they haven't taken steps. And so unless the High Court crafts a new exemption, a new, uh, a new qualification to the words of the section, then they could all be struck out. So going now to the news that broke yesterday about Darren Hinch, um, it's been suggested that he might be in trouble um, because he has a US social security card. He explained this morning that it was to do with the fact he paid taxes for 10 years, which technically makes him eligible for a pension that he never received. Um, do you think that he's in breach of Section 44 in your interpretation? Look, I think it's unlikely in his case, though he's right to get it investigated and good on him for getting it looked at. Um, because one of the problems here is that this is such a random ad hoc process, people popping out of the woodwork. Heaven knows really who is covered by this. There are probably many people we just don't know about. So he's he's come clean with an issue. I don't think it's likely he's covered, though, and that's because the Constitution does say if you're entitled to the rights and privileges of being a citizen of another country, you're knocked out. That would likely mean a passport. Other things that really are connected much more strongly to citizenship. Just having social security benefits, probably not enough, I think. Um, because it's not unusual that non-citizens get some sort of benefits from a government. I mean, even in Australia, at least until recently, asylum seekers uh, can get benefits for housing and other things, you know, pension-like arrangements. So we'll see. It does depend upon the US law. I can't give a clear answer, but I think it's likely he will fall outside of the section. Okay. And, and do you think he should be referred to the High Court? And could that result in the High Court um, issuing a more definitive ruling on the use of the word entitled, as it appears in Section 44? Well, and it's true that none of the cases referred so far will raise this question of entitled. I mean, there's two key parts of the section. The first is if you're a subject or a citizen of a foreign power, disqualified. The second thing is, um, if you're entitled to those benefits of a subject or a citizen, then you're knocked out. And uh, the entitled bit is potentially much broader. And we haven't really focused on that. And it's something that actually could have a much bigger impact on MPs. And so if the Darren Hinch case goes to the High Court, we might get some clarity, but it may be some disturbing clarity because we might start talking about a broader range of disqualifications. Whether he should go, though, really depends. We need more information. At this stage, there's not enough to say that there's a genuine problem. It should be investigated, but it's quite possible we'll have information just to say, look, this is a minor benefit. It's pretty typical it's given out by countries without it being connected to citizenship. If that's the case, it really doesn't need to go to the High Court. But look, if it's in an area of grey, then yes, it would be wise to test and check it out. Okay. And um, how far might the 
I suppose, the parameters of entitled extend. So, for instance, someone um, recently suggested to me that Malcolm Turnbull could be considered in breach because of his investments in the in the Cayman Islands and paying no tax on those investments could be considered um, as being entitled to the rights and privileges of Cayman Islands citizens. Is that taking it way too far or is that something that could come up? Look, I, th- I think it's a stretch. And, of course, if we get into that category, how many of them would be left? Yeah. Really, because 226 parliamentarians, the odds are that they've got some connections in some cases through family or marriage or descent that doesn't make them a citizen but gives them the capacity to apply for some benefits. Um, and it's not going to go that far. And, and also the key thing here is it's not any old benefit. It's a benefit that's connected with citizenship in some way. And a favourable tax status, I mean, countries often do that without it being a citizenship benefit. They do it for purely commercial reasons. Um, They often give companies tax breaks as well, but there's no suggestion there that it's of the kind that's a concern. So really what we're looking for are entitlements that are about citizenship in some way, about allegiance in some way as well. And so I think the Malcolm Turnbull case, look, I don't think it'll fit into that category. The government, as it's it's well known, just has a one-seat majority in the lower house. And if Joyce does lose his seat, it would go to a by-election. Potentially, the, the government could be overthrown. Would the High Court be wary at all in making such a huge decision? Um, or are they just like, no, it's the law, this is our job, we, we don't care? Well, they'd certainly be aware of the gravity of the situation, but the High Court has many times been called upon to make decisions like this. Uh, It's made decisions that have uh, knocked people out of Parliament in the past, and of the 10 people who've gone to the High Court under Section 44, eight have been knocked out. Um, The High Court's often made decisions that have been really big body blows to government. I mean, think of the High Court decision that struck down Julia Gillard's uh, Malaysian solution plan, which was really a vital part of her political defence in dealing with the issue of asylum seekers. So the High Court's not shy uh, in doing this. On this occasion, I think, you know, they'll they'll be fortified by the fact that, you know, they have a line of authority. They've made decisions in this area before. Um, I think also they'll be well aware that uh, this was a topic that Parliament itself could have fixed. This is a constitutional problem that's well known. And uh, the High Court is composed of judges, a majority of whom have been appointed by the coalition, not to be creative adventurous types, but to apply the law as they see it. So I think that's most likely what we'll get in this case. Okay. And what's your view? Do you think Section 44 needs to go or be amended? Look, I do. I I think it's it's a really poor fit for the country in which we live. And there's a reason this has attracted so much international curiosity. I mean, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, the US, they all allow dual citizens. And it's not even an issue. I mean, you take an oath when you go into Parliament, so you know you must do your best for that country. But um, Australia's in a situation where we knock people out because another country regards one of our MPs as being a citizen. And we can't control that. Um, And it actually, I think, affects our sovereignty and the stability of our democracy to leave these matters to other countries. And Ecuador was a great recent example with Katie Gallagher. It looks like she's not a citizen, so it seems she's fine. But Ecuador says you might be a citizen where not just your parent, not just a grandparent, but a great-grandparent is born in Ecuador. So we have a provision that means that an MP's got to be looking at their great-grandparents, and uh, it just doesn't make sense. It it should have been changed years ago, and we're paying the price for parliamentary inaction. So speaking more broadly, how big a problem is it that we're all ruled by this document that is, you know, very old, in, in some ways very out of date, and that is so incredibly difficult to make changes to? Well, it is difficult, but on the other hand, it's it's difficult in part because of really poor political management. I mean, our politicians have done a spectacularly bad job um, in many cases in convincing people of the need for change. And sensible changes like this haven't been put up. Instead, most of the changes have been about giving politicians more power, and people have voted no. So look, yes, it's tough to change, but it's it just doesn't work unless there's a process that involves the people in a different way. So I, I look, I think... I think that's a starting point. I think um, I think also in terms of this particular provision, we need to recognise that the government uh, ha- has before it a number of reports that give very specific examples of where it needs to change. They've said we should just make this a provision that says you must be an Australian citizen. That would be a sensible shift. And I think also, as you've suggested, there are a number of other things we should be looking at. Um, it says a lot to me that our constitution still has clauses in it that permit racial discrimination. I mean, they're, they're from the white Australia policy era. And what they say is that uh, races can be disqualified from voting. 
at state elections. They say the federal parliament can make laws that, in the words of our Prime Minister, are directed at the coloured, coloured or inferior races within the Commonwealth. And it said a bit about us as a community, that we've left that there. And uh, we're the only nation in the world that I know of has, that has those race-based clauses, and, and clearly they should all, also go. Do you think there's scope for some kind of, um, I suppose, omnibus referendum, where the the parliament, some kind of bar bipartisan process where they go through and, and look at all the things that need updating. Do you think that that could be sold to the public? I think so, yes. Um, I mean, if the public realise that, for example, a constitution still refers to pounds instead of dollars. Um, I mean, a lot of <laughs> that basic does, that stuff does seem like something that needs updating. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that in there. It's, it's a 1901 document that mm -hmm. um, has been little changed, only eight times in all those years, and not a single change since 1977, so 40 years. A lot of it's just out of date. And, and the problem is, it's, you could say, well, it's out of date and it doesn't matter, but it does, because this is the rule book of the nation. And we see at the moment the price you pay when you don't keep things up to date. It can cause the most awful problems, political instability. We pay a big price for that as a community. So one sensible thing to do is, yes, we should just have an update of the things that need to be altered, the things that are not politically contentious. And uh, that might actually be a good place to start before moving on to some of the more tricky issues. The current drama over Section 44 it kind of, you know, all kicked off with Scott Ludlam and then it was almost like dominoes falling, falling. Do you see any other parts of the Constitution that perhaps have the scope to um, escalate in this way for one person to, to kind of stand up and bring a bit of attention to it and then that provides further scrutiny that, that leads to a similar kind of situation we're seeing now? Well, certainly other parts of Section 44. I mean, the dual citizenship is just one of five aspects of it. And mm -hmm. it also says you're knocked out if you hold an office of profit under the Crown. Uh, that could cover people who entered politics while working for a university, while working in local government. We've had many people in the past in those categories, but they haven't been challenged. The other one that's a big one at the moment is if you have a direct or indirect financial interest in an agreement with the Commonwealth um, in key circumstances, that can knock you out. Bob Day's already been knocked out. Labor is challenging lower house member David Gillespie on that ground. Senator Barry O'Sullivan, it's been suggested, could be caught. And so we're focusing on citizenship, but these other aspects as well have the potential to go far further. And uh, the High Court in these areas, again, has been strict in the approach it's taken. But we haven't tended to go down these paths because there's been an accommodation between the major parties. They know that if they declare war, their members could also be caught. Uh, so it's taken you know, a Greens member and then working through Culleton and Day to actually raise the momentum in this area. But we have to see, it's quite possible it could occur in other areas as well. And moving now to the postal survey mm. uh, on same-sex marriage, you said yesterday that the government is facing an uphill battle on this. Why don't you rate its chances? Well, it's facing an uphill battle um, because the High Court has said over a number of cases in which it struck down the National Schools Chaplaincy Program that... Um, in almost all circumstances, the government needs parliamentary authorisation to spend money. Uh, and that's why the government twice tried to get its plebiscite through Parliament. Parliament said no. So it's now trying to hold the postal survey without that authorisation. Uh, the government says it's found a backdoor method of doing this. There's a special appropriation act that lets it spend money um, authorised by Parliament on urgent and unforeseen matters. And so the question for the High Court is, is this urgent and unforeseen? And it's hard for me to see how it's urgent. Uh, you know, maybe it is for the government's own political priorities and unforeseen. Well, we have been debating this for a while. So I just look at that and, and just say as a matter of common sense, uh, unless the High Court perhaps says we just give a lot of leeway to the government, then I think it's going to be hard to convince the court. The two challenges that have been brought, broadly speaking, both of them attack the Postal Survey on, on both the grounds of the funding authorisation, as you say, and then also on the authority of the ABS to collect the, the data that it's been asked to. Do you think it's, it's more likely to fall down on one or the other of those, of those two tenants? Yeah, I, th I think the, the most likely angle of attack is the angle that uh, the spending hasn't been authorised. Mm -hmm. um, the issue that the Australian Bureau of Statistics doesn't have the mandate to do it. I think there's merit there. I think it's a weaker argument, though. I think it's I think it's just more intuitively arguable to say this is about statistical collection than it is to say this is urgent and unforeseen. But a lot of this will come down to precedence, the arguments that the, the lawyers put, there's reams and reams of documents that'll go to the court um, to look at. But, uh, you know, when I look at it, I could see the government could win this case. It's quite possible, but I think it is an uphill battle. 
And I think if it is lost, of course, that'll be the end of the postal survey in all likelihood. And all the campaigning and other things will come to a halt and we'll be back to where we started. That is, will Parliament make a decision? We saw yesterday the government submissions um, uploaded to the High Court website. And one of the um, attacks that they've raised is the issue of standing. Could you explain briefly what um, the issue of standing means and and why the government might be embarking on, on that line? Well, to bring a case in court... Um, particularly the High Court in a matter like this, you've got to show you have an interest in the proceedings. No no, no mere bystander or busybody can bring an action. You, you've got to have a special interest of some kind. And here it's not always obvious who would have that interest. It's about spending money on a large ballot. Um, and so the Commonwealth is saying, well, the people bringing the case don't have an interest, so the High Court should never hear it. They're trying to knock it out at first go. You know, that's, I think that's, again, a tough argument, partly because two of the people bringing the case are parliamentarians. Mm-hmm. So they have an interest through that. The High Court previously has recognised parliamentarians can bring matters of this kind. Um, and also the High Court has said that where one or more states intervenes in the case, that that also tends to give standing anyway. And, and that's likely we'll have a state intervention. So, uh, look, I think the Commonwealth's got an argument there. But again, I think it's a tough sell. Okay. So more likely to be fought on the appropriations front? More li- more likely, yes. Okay. But look, again, I mean, I, I'm always wary in making predictions about the High Court. It's We'll see what happens. I mean, seven judges, very complex matters. Uh, but what I can say is that I think, you know, I think in this particular case, the Commonwealth's got the harder argument. And is there any significance to the fact that these two challenges are, are running side by side as opposed to being one case? And what are the, the pros and cons of that tactic? You mean the two challenges both attacking the postal survey? Yeah, the two separate challenges against the survey. Well, both of the challenges to the postal survey are are attacking it at its core, even whether the government can hold it. And they've filed their matter separately, but the High Court sensibly is hearing them together because they deal with similar issues. And uh, in cases like this, you will tend to find that the court will aggregate matters where they're dealing with the same questions of law. Um, It's just efficient. And if nothing else, we're on a pretty tight timetable. There's next Tuesday and Wednesday the court will hear the matter. The week after, voting starts, so there's no time to hear these matters separately. On the tight timeline, when do you think the High Court is likely to hand down its decision? I mean, obviously in other matters it takes a, a longer time usually, but will, will the decision be expedited as well? Yeah, normally it takes months, of course, to get into court and then to get a decision because the court likes to think about things. It's making law for the nation and... Uh, it's right that it considers its position very, very carefully. But in this one, they don't have that time. They don't have that luxury. So it's an expedited hearing brought on very quickly. I think it's it's quite possible we will get the court announcing a decision at the end of next Wednesday. Um, that's when the hearing ends. And if, if the judges go back and say, well, we think we know what the answer is, then I think they're likely to announce it, or, or soon afterwards. Look, within a matter of days, it'll have to be in any event, but we probably won't get their reasons, the tens of pages of why they've reached that result until sometime later. And if the government does lose, it will have already spent millions on preparing for the postal survey. Is there any kind of mechanism or, or remedy for that money to be recovered? Can the government pay itself back in a way? No, and it, look, it's just lost taxpayers' money in that case. It's not as if it can recover it in any meaningful way. And uh, no, it's, it's, it's just money that uh, is money that can't be used for something better. Okay. A lot of Australians don't know what's in the Constitution or may not even know that the Constitution exists. Does that matter? Look, I, I think it does. And it's like, it's not just the Constitution, but our system of government generally. If you don't have a, a basic level of literacy, very hard to keep the politicians into account. And what happens is people can spin you all sorts of yarns about what's happening or about their powers or often what they say is I don't have power over this, it's a state issue or no, it's a federal issue and they pass the buck as a result. So if as a citizen you don't have that knowledge, you end up being very vulnerable to you know false information um, from our politicians and the constitution has to be part of that because it's part of the system, it structures uh, that power that our politicians exercise and if you care about what people can do to others by exercising political power, then you need to be invested and have some level of understanding of uh, how our nation's document works. And how do you feel about armchair constitutional experts, of which we've seen a lot lately? Do do you appreciate, I suppose, people giving out their own interpretations of the constitution? Or does it make you think... Log off Twitter. <laughs> you haven't actually read this. <laughs> you don't know what's going on. Oh, look, if they haven't read it, yeah, look, I think that's a bit much. I think mm. if um, if you're just making it up, well, 
you know, I, I think that's unfortunate because it just, it, you know, if we want to talk about fake news, you know, that, that would be an example if you're simply doing it without even reading it. But look, otherwise, no, I think if, if someone's had a look and they've got a view, they should express it. Uh, I think the problem with the Constitution is it's far too much the domain of experts. It's such an arcane document, it's almost impenetrable many times. But I think it should be a people's document. It should much more clearly express the rules that govern our society. It should have better protection for human rights, all sorts of things that matter to us as a community. And uh, that should be something that people should feel free to speak about. And, of course, they do so in the United States and other places, and they tend to have a much richer civic discussion and... Uh, political atmosphere as a result of broader engagement in these matters. Finally, the BuzzFeed Politics podcast is called Is It On? Are you familiar with the, the use of the phrase it's on in Australian politics? No, what do you mean by that? <laughs> it's um, it's usually used in, in reference to leadership. So, okay. you know, when Tony Abbott's making his latest move or during yep. the Rudd-Gillard era, oh, okay. it's, it's on, on in that sense. means yes. that someone's making yeah, a move. Okay. No, I know yeah. it in that sense, so yes. We, we normally ask people... Um, who, who come on the podcast, that's usually politicians, mm. if it's on in Parliament House. But I, but I want to ask you, um, <laughs> if it's on in, in the legal world, do you think there's, um, do you think the current uh, vibe, to borrow the word from the yeah, castle... Don't mention that in your essay, um, <laughs> if you're studying yeah. here, that, that's a real problem. <laughs> do, you, do you think the current vibe um, indicates that the move is on for the Constitution to be updated? Yeah, look, I think, it's, I think we've built up a lot of momentum, and I think what's... What's happened here is it's become clear to many, many Australians that the system has got this flaw in it and uh, that the government they expect is being frustrated by this document that is creating uncertainty and all sorts of problems. So, yeah, I hope it's on. It should be on. And uh, it's been 40 years since a successful referendum and it's about time we had another one and put something up that the people want to support. George Williams, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I like being warmer. I like being warmer. Great constitutional chat with George Williams there. So just to reiterate, the dates for the High Court challenges are next week, Postal Survey. Then in October, we've got the Dual Citizens. Now, we had a huge gallery of whispers last week for Mark's last episode. No whispers this week, but it will be back. Although, Lane, we've got to have maybe an off-air discussion about uh, what we want to do with the whispers because someone came up to me on the weekend and said they don't like the new format, which is where we only whisper gallery whispers and not the gossip. And I believe that you are feeling a bit bit ripped off. That is a view that I share. I have always been a fan of the whispering aspect of Gallery Whispers. It's in the name. It makes the whispers funnier. It yeah. makes them more secretive. Yeah. Um, I don't know why so many people complain about the whispers, but anyway, oh, well. they do. Uh, well, Mark's gone. Maybe we'll bring it back next yeah. week. Let's, anyway. have, let's have this discussion elsewhere. Yeah, okay. <laughs> offline, offline. Now, it's been a chock-a-block episode, uh, so we'll crack on with some bin juice. Um, that's, of course, the stories we didn't think got enough attention. My bin juice this week is about the government's internship program, PATH. That's Prepare, Trial, Hire. You may remember it as the $4 an hour internship program that the government introduced in the last budget. Well, it's been running since April this year. And it's a if you don't know anything about it, it's a voluntary program that young people on welfare can sign up to where they work as interns at a business and they can work a maximum of 50 hours a fortnight and they get an extra $200 for that fortnight's work on top of their Centrelink money, and the internships can run for four to 12 weeks. Now, the businesses, they get $1,000 upfront and, of course, free labour. Now, a lot of people at the time were worried that this could lead to exploitation of young people, and unfortunately, looks like it has. So a 23-year-old Melbourne man named David contacted BuzzFeed this week, and he showed us his timesheet from his PATH internship at Espresso Lane Coffee Franchise in Melbourne. And in one week, he worked 58 hours, sometimes from 5 a.m. to 5 p.m., 58 hours. They're only meant to be working 50 over two weeks. He worked 58 in one week. And how much did he get paid for that 58 hours worth of work? $100. He only got $100 for one week's work. He, he's doing the work of a full-time employee and he got $100, but but he did get offered some gift cards as compensation, which he didn't accept. So, so he's now got a lawyer and he's chasing the government for more than $2,000 worth of lost wages for all of that unpaid overtime. And as soon as we published David's story this week, a second young woman who also did an internship at the same coffee store in Melbourne has come forward saying that before she'd even signed her PATH contract, she was asked to do two full days worth of work. Needless to say, she and her mother were not very happy. So 
Now, this is huge because it's confirmed everyone's suspicions that that the internship programs may be operating outside Australian law. And so after we publish these stories, the Department of Employment has come out and said that they're going to suspend that Melbourne coffee shop from the PATH program because there is a clear violation of the terms of the internship. So is this the only case of, of kids being exploited with this internship program? We are going to find out. So watch this space. Some big questions the Employment Minister will have to answer when we're back in Canberra next week. Anyway, Lane, what is in Yubbinges? Okay, so following on from Mark Stiffy's tradition, mm. I'm going to ask someone else to do my bin juice. <gasps> so the thing I am dragging out of the bin this week and, and you know, wiping the bin juices off it is our producer, Nick Ray. Yay, Nick Ray! Who is, at long last... Back from six weeks in the US of A, you've probably noticed our our sound this week is <laughs> much better than the past few weeks. Just so much better. Just yep. so. Thank you for listening to us in the tough times. Exactly. So, Nick Ray, we're so happy to have you back. Um, I hear that you spent most of your time hanging out at Trump rallies. Is that right? Yeah. So wherever Donald Trump was having a rally or anything, I had to be there. From the outside, when we first walk in, it's a lot of people standing out in the sun wearing red hats. Um, but the the real stuff kind of came when I got inside. When like I was in the media pit up near the back, and I was standing between uh, Sarah Huckleby Sanders and the Mooch. I was right near the Mooch. Oh my God! In the ten days he was uh, in his you, role, you stood right next to I the was Mooch right during his extremely Mooch. short stint. I was next to the Mooch. <laughs> Nick, that is amazing. I know. Uh, Sarah Huckleby Sanders was there, uh-huh. and then there was uh, Kellyanne Conway was there um, yep. with shoes on, which was a different sight to see. But um, I was like in the media tent. Trump keeps on, when he's having his speech, he will keep on saying the media and fake news. Whenever he will say that, he will have an arena full of people turn around and just yell at you. Oh, my God. So that's when I'm like, okay, this is a uh, this is pretty confronting because uh, when you have a whole... I had this uh, kid keep on turning around. He had a pocket-sized constitution in his pocket and was kept on holding it at me like it was the Bible. Sorry, an American child brandished a constitution at you. When I say American child, it's probably a teenager. Okay, but, um, right. Yeah, he was just... Still. And I'm like, what are you, tr- what are you proving? I, I'm, 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 I was really just there to play Would You Rather with yeah. um, American... Uh, with some Trump supporters, which is up on uh, BuzzFeed News, by the way. There's my cheap plug. If you were President of the United States and you had to pick one country to invade, Australia or New Zealand? Damn. New Zealand. Why New Zealand? Because Australia's cooler. Australia. Australia. Invite. Invade, invite. Um, New Zealand, I guess. What did we do wrong besides our Prime Minister mimic your president? Do you know anything about uh, New Zealand? No. Have you seen Lord of the Rings? Watch it all the time. Filmed in New Zealand? Oh, really? Yeah, so that's going to be your land now. Who is the bigger threat to America, ISIS or North Korea? (laughs) Since North Korea doesn't have ICPs, which are intercontinental uh, projectiles for nukes, they can't shoot America. Those have been playing Call of Duty. Yeah. Probably right now, him, North Korea. Okay, Kim Jong-un. Pardon? Kim Jong-un. I can't get his name straight, but he's a he's a dumbhead. North Korea, they act like they got a crazy man running the place, and he's got stuff to do damage with. Garbage. You're the garbage. We're the garbage. What about uh, Russians or liberals? Who do you feel is a bigger threat? Uh, liberals. The liberals are the biggest threat to America right now. They're against everything in the world. I mean, they're against everything that tries to happen. What really makes me mad is when they go out and try to tear up everything. You know, and smash cars and smash into windows and steal. And, and, you know, I think somebody ought to just take a gun out. You know, it would stop a lot of it. The thing after the second rally in West Virginia, I have and I do, um, we have tweeted this uh, footage, was uh, a lot of the police and... uh, like heavily armored police were all buying the Trump merch after and laughing and showing it to their friends and everything, which was kind of a. Uh, I'm just like, okay, like there we go. But um, so just before I let you go, Trump rally, would you go again? Good experience. I uh, it was everything I expected it to be, but um. The thing I need to bring up is the playlist they were playing at mm-hmm. these Trump rallies. Before you go in, they are blasting music. This is. I it, the, the the music was unbearable. People were covering their ears. They were playing. The soundtrack is nothing like what you would expect at a Trump rally. We had Elton John. 
Yeah. We he came out to Tiny Dancer both rallies. I think he did, but he you know, he came out to kind of it started with Tiny Dancer. Then he came out to some weird kid singing, which was just the Trump creepiest came out thing. on stage to Tiny Dancer before by Tiny John. Dancer. Whenever he plays Tiny Dancer, I okay. think that's like. They'll they'll be playing Tiny Dancer, and then because there's speakers before Trump coming out, they'll have two Secret Service agents. I'm not too sure. Go out with the uh, the the plaque that they put on the front of the podium for when he, he's beginning to speak. The circle with the United States of America. Pro- yep. yep. And that comes out. Everyone gets really pumped. And then Adele starts playing. They had the Cat soundtrack. I shit you not. They were playing Cats and Adele. I don't know how um, Andrew Lloyd Webber or Adele would feel with having their music played at a Trump rally, but both rallies they had that, and it was like we, I, I, I can dig up or we wrote down the soundtrack from what we heard. Me and the producer I was with, Andrew Kimmel, great guy, but um, the the, the soundtrack was like Mr. Mistopheles. They were playing, yeah, incredible. Well, Nick, thank you so much for describing the experience of the Trump rally for us here on Is It On? No worries. Well, Nick, I'm so glad that you're back from the United States of uh, whatever, I mean America. Um, And I want to say a big thank you to you for uh, pumping up the blood mattresses and putting the blankets with the gaffer tapes on the walls so that we could record today's podcast. Our soundproofing is um, (laughs) somewhat DIY, (laughs) shall shall we say. (laughs) Can I also say a big thank you to Nicola Harvey, Richard James, Peter Holmes and the whole pod team. Big thank you to Rode for supporting the podcast. You can go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on, subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. You can leave a rating and a review. Um, We're going to be back next week from Canberra. I will will be in Canberra. Lane will be in Melbourne covering the High Court. So finally, we could know the results of the plebiscite. Um, I'm at Workman Alice on Twitter. She's at Lane Sainty Lane. I'm so excited to have you as my new co-host. This has been a cracker of a first episode. Yeah, look, I'm feeling pretty nervous. I hope people like it. Um, Will you change your Twitter bio to uh, co-host of the award-nominated podcast, Is It Not? Definitely not (laughs) award-nominated. But maybe she's so ashamed of me. Maybe co-host. I'm not ashamed. I I don't know. I I don't want to appear. Anyway, um, anyway, Alice. Yes, I have a question to ask you. Mm-hmm. It's it's a short question, yeah. but a very important one. Ooh, Alice Workman, is it on? It's not on. It's not on. But you know what is on? What the Prime Minister's phone when he does uh, interviews live on television <laughs> because he was on a current affair last night and uh, in the middle of being asked some <laughs> hard hitting questions by Tracy Grimshaw, his iPhone started ringing. And he looked so, I've never, it's the most organic, natural <laughs> response I've ever seen from the man when he freaked out that he left one of his 10 iPhones on. Uh, maybe it was Lucy calling him, asking him what was for dinner, but I don't know. And then he went on um, WS this morning and uh, had an interview with Jonesy and Amanda about ringtones. They were kind of, they were dragging him for having the ringtone that he does, well, just the, the very can, standard can, ringtone. Well, I can play you what his ringtone is. Okay. Oh, it's Nick. That's Nick's ringtone. Yeah. Nick, why haven't you changed your ringtone from the default? Because none of my friends phone call. Like, they don't call anyone. He's giving some shit excuses. Anyway, okay, so that's all we've got time for. Uh, Lane, thank you again. And uh, thanks for listening. And uh, hit us up on the Twitter DMs. Okay. Uh, Bye. Bye.